Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you today. Tuesday, October 5th. Uh, I missed my usual day of recording this podcast, Sunday. Uh, but I figured it would be better to record something a little short and a little late versus uh, just missing the week and putting up nothing at all. So <laughs> thus, here I am speaking to you Tuesday night here in my room at St. Patrick's Seminary. Yeah, we are in the thick of preparing for midterms here already. It's kind of crazy that we're already <laughs> at this point in the semester, but here we are. Seems like we just started a couple days ago, and uh, here we are already midway through, um, ramping up for exams here. So my first one is this Friday, and then they continue on through next week, and then we get a free weekend after that to uh, decompress a little bit, get off campus, and uh, yeah, have a, a little a little break in order for our brains to uh, <laughs> return back to normal capacity. So I am preparing for those exams this week. Um, I have my canon law midterm on Friday, and then coming up next week, I have ecclesiology, uh, Catholic social teaching, and I don't even know what else at this point. I haven't even. I haven't even gotten that far ahead, <laughs> but uh, that is what's going on here this week. So we are, uh, I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not too bad, but we're under a little bit of pressure. That is just a, a typical, you know, as the rector here at St. Patrick's likes to say, uh, it's good to be stretched. It's not good to, to be strained. So we're not, at least I'm not being strained, but we're certainly being stretched <laughs> during this week of term. Other than that, I have been working on my MA thesis, um, getting a, a start on that here this semester. Of course, I have until, really until, uh, until I graduate to work on this. And practically, um, and I say this as a consolation for myself, although I, oops, dropped my pen there. I don't intend to continue it this long, but I in theory, could continue on for two years even after graduation to get this thesis done. So by no means is it urgent, but I am getting a start on it now um, in terms of yeah, planning out the, the paper. It's a 60 to 80 page paper, so I'm planning, planning ahead, doing the outline. Um, I've already gathered a lot of sources, so I'm beginning to do some readings as well. And yeah, just kind of it's beginning to take shape, which is cool. Um, it's gone from a germ of an idea to something which really now has an identifiable structure and some good sources and it kind of has a direction of argument and all that. So, um, yeah, I had a meeting with my thesis director today. He's a wonderful professor here. Uh, his name's Dr. Adrian Walker. Uh, he's actually, well, he's, he's internationally uh, known in Catholic theology world, you know. He is... Uh, a polyglot, and uh, he translated some of Pope Benedict's works from German into English, which is pretty cool. So if you've ever read Pope Benedict's uh, series, Jesus of Nazareth, open up the inside cover uh, in the English edition by Ignatius Press, and you'll see my professor's name there, Dr. Adrian Walker. He's also the editor of Communio magazine for a long time, and yeah, just pretty well-known and well-respected theologian. We're very, very lucky to have him here among many other great scholars. We're just blessed to have here at St. Patrick's on the faculty. Anyway, I really like him and we get along well. 
So we went out for coffee today and we're just talking about the project and he gave me some great feedback on my outline and just putting things in order. So yeah, the topic, I don't think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but the topic is priestly obedience. Um, Actually, it's a kind of a constellation of three ideas. So priesthood, sonship, and obedience. And how do those go together in the life of a diocesan priest? Um, which is different, for, for example, from the life of a religious priest, like a, like a, a Dominican or a Carmelite or something like that. Um, of course, there's one clear difference is that religious, religious, as you may know, they profess vows, including the vow of obedience. Whereas as diocesan priests, we don't make vows, we make promises. We make a promise of obedience to our bishop, but we don't make a vow per se. So already there's kind of an interesting difference there which um, part of the goal of my paper here is to unpack. Not so much, though, sort of pitting the two against each other and just contrasting them, but um, by analogy, um, showing what is the character of diocesan priestly obedience, by analogy to religious life, also to marriage. You know, as St. Paul says, husband and wife are called to be mutually submissive to one another out of love for Christ. So there's a a kind of obedience that's proper to married couples, which is very, very interesting. So what's the analogy there that maybe can illuminate the relationship of a priest with his bishop in terms of obedience as well? Um, But the foundation for it all is is really one that's uh, theological and it's rooted in the Holy Trinity. And so the way I'm approaching this paper, and I'm beginning to get excited about it now that it kind of has more of a definite direction, is uh, first of all through scriptural exegesis. And so beginning with the letter to the Hebrews, where we get all this very, very beautiful theology from St. Paul about um, you know, the priesthood of Christ and Christ who, as the high priest of our confession, he fulfills um, all these Old Testament ideas of priesthood. And so Christ is, yeah, the son of the father who also becomes a priest. He becomes our high priest. And he learns obedience through suffering. And so all the notions of, you know, priesthood, obedience, and sonship are all there, united in Jesus Christ. So I'm beginning with Christ, always a good place to start in theology. And then I'm going to work back all the way from Adam and Eve, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden in the beginning. There's some interesting things to say there about um, sort of the the, the priesthood of Adam, in a certain sense, because uh, the language in Genesis is very interesting. It, it, Adam is really depicted as a kind of a, a priest, you know, and Eden is like a cosmic temple. It's like the, the holy of holies of this temple that God has built. And in the center of it, rather than in all the pagan temples where they put that, their own idol in the middle, In the center of this temple that God has built, he places Adam, who is his own image. And in that sense, is a son. He's like God's firstborn son. So interesting things to say there. Then also, through just looking at the whole history of the people of Israel, um, there's interesting things about Israel as a nation, God's chosen nation. He calls Israel his firstborn son, many places. And Israel is also called a priestly people with the, you know, the Levites and the Aaronic priesthood and all the ritual priestly stuff in the Old Covenant, which 
which is very interesting to look at. And the, the notion that runs throughout salvation history from the beginnings of Israel, from Abraham all the way on until the time of Christ, is one of the people continually being called to obedience, disobeying, <laughs> and being called again to repentance by the prophets and so on. So that's kind of the arc of history that I'm going to trace, um, building up, of course, to Christ, uh, who recapitulates that whole history. And then looking at how now obedience uh, to God, which Christ embodies for us perfectly, and like St. Paul says in Philippians to the whole church, all of you must have the same mind that's in Christ Jesus and be obedient as he was obedient to death. So St. Paul says that to the whole church. Everyone who's Christian is called to obedience like Christ and obedience with the whole self, uh, obedience to the Father. But now there's interesting thing uh, post-Christ, you know, post after the life of Christ in the, in the New Testament, um, now in the life of the church, um, precisely that that obedience is mediated through the church now. And we, we already see it in St. Paul where he's saying like, okay, be obedient to the bishops as you're obedient to Christ. Um, and also in the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who lived in the like second century, um, he has some very, very beautiful theology relating to bishops and priests um, and the laity and the obedience that is due. Where he, he even says in one place, the bishop is the image of the father. Tupos tu patri, I think in Greek. He's the image of the father. Uh, and so that's kind of, that's the theological work I want to do is, yeah, building up a, 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 a theology of obedience. Um, okay, we already have kind of a notion in canon law of what obedience means <laughs> and the rights and duties of priests and bishops laid out in legal language. Um, likewise, some of the spiritual writers have written beautiful things about obedience as a virtue and as an evangelical counsel. But kind of what I want to do here is bring together the scriptural evidence and like Ignatius of Antioch, like the very, very early uh, church fathers, and build up this theological vision for, okay, now what, what, what's the purpose, what's the point of obedience? Like on a theological level, um, what is obedience doing? What is the obedience of a priest or the bishop? Like we get kind of why it's necessary practically uh, for the good of the church. We get why it gives a good example, like it makes us like Christ. It's sanctifying in that way. Yeah. But my hunch is and this is like a theological hunch, <laughs> um, that there is something that's very, very, very deep and Trinitarian um, in, the, in the structure of obedience there. So like if the bishop is the image of the father, by analogy, then the priest becomes the image of the son. And so the obedience of a priest to his bishop now it, it, becomes, it has kind of an iconographic character, you know, it becomes like a living icon of Christ who's obedient to the Father. And yeah, sometimes that looks like Gethsemane, like it looks like Christ in the garden sweating blood, um, where he has to submit his human will, which you know naturally desires to live, to his divine will, the divine will of the Father, by which he knows he must lay his life down for the salvation of the world. Sometimes that's what obedience is gonna look like, like, it, Christ himself was not spared from that chalice. So there's that aspect of it on the one hand. But on the other hand, there's just the beauty of communion and 
the son matching the father, you know, step for step, movement for movement, um, being of one heart and one mind. That's what the inner Trinitarian life of God is like between the father and the son without dissension, um, this intimate communion of hearts and minds by which, um, yeah, the father and the son gazing upon one another from all eternity are so deeply united and their work in the world, in creation and redemption is like perfect, it is truly perfectly um, one. <laughs> There's no division in the Trinity and there ought not be any division in the church between priest and bishop. Now, of course, this is a, an ideal picture, you know, um, and with original sin, it, it all becomes more messy. But, it, you know, it's important to have a vision of the ideal uh, because that gives us, you know, our, 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 our marching orders. Like, what are we supposed to strive for? What are we doing with all this? So the life of obedience, or the, rather the role of obedience in the life of a diocesan priest, you know, some, some priests say obedience is the hardest promise to make and the hardest promise to live. I'm sure that that's true. Um, but in a certain sense, I think it's also maybe the most important in the sense that, yeah, it's by obedience that we show forth to the world this relationship of father and son, which, as I've talked about before on this podcast, is I think is like, first of all, such a deeply Roman way to think about God, <laughs> but it's also deeply Jewish. Like this is the way, it was all through the Old Testament. And this is like how Christ has revealed to us that we're supposed to relate to God. We've become sons and daughters in his sonship, we share in his sonship, we become adopted children of God. And yeah, in the church, this gets shown forth in an iconographic way. So anyway, that's way more than I intended to say about this. I, I'm sorry, but that is what I'm writing about and I'm getting excited about it. Uh, so yeah, that's, you'll probably hear, I'm sorry to say a lot more about this <laughs> in future weeks and months of this podcast as I continue to do some research and begin writing this soon. But uh, yeah, hopefully I'll have some interesting tidbits to share with you as I dive deeper into my research in the weeks and months to come. Uh, all right, enough about that. Let's jump over and talk for a few minutes about this week's, or rather last week's readings from J.R.R. Tolkien. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. Fool of a took. Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. So before we get into the actual signed readings for last week from the Unfinished Tales, I want to make sure to let you let you all know <laughs> something that I heard about this week. There is a great new book that's come out. It's called The Nature of Middle-Earth. And this is edited uh, by Carl Hostetter, who I believe is quite a well-known Tolkien scholar. Uh, Carl Hofstetter, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the book The Nature of Middle-Earth. I'm just going to go through and read you uh, some of the things in the table of contents because I am super excited about this book. If any of you want to get me a gift, 
feel free to order this for me on Amazon because <laughs> I would be very excited to pick this up and read it. Um, of course, in all my copious spare time, right? I'm barely getting through the Tolkien readings as it is from the Unfinished Tales. But uh, maybe over Christmas break or something, I would very, very much like to pick this up and start going through it. So the nature of Middle-earth. Um, here are the, the sections of this book. Um, so the first section is called Time and Aging. And I'll just give you a few key uh, chapter headings from this section. So we get... Uh, um, uh, difficulties in chronology. We get aging of the elves, generational schemes, elvish ages and Numenorean ages compared, concerning the Quendi in their mode of life and growth, elvish life cycles, time and its perception. That's, that sounds like an essay I read in philosophy by Kant or something. <laughs> or Heidegger, more likely. Time and its perception. Great. Part two is called Body, Mind, and Spirit, and this has some really interesting chapters. Beauty and goodness, uh, gender and sex, hair, beards, <laughs> interesting, uh, knowledge and memory, fate and free will. Now I'm positive I've done a podcast with that exact title. Uh, spirits, elvish reincarnation, and the visible forms of the Valar and Maiar. Oh, and death also. <laughs> this is the final chapter. And then part three, the world, its lands, and its inhabitants. Here we get some chapters including dark and light, uh, the primal impulse, powers of the Valar, the making of Lembus, notes on elvish economy, <laughs> dwellings in Middle-earth, elvish journeys on horseback, uh, lives and aging of Numenorians. It seems like that should be in the first section, but anyway. Um, note on the consumption of mushrooms. <laughs> no, that is something I would like to read. Um, Galadriel and Celeborn, some more details about them. Note on dwarvish voices. I wonder what that could even be. Um, and then we have a whole appendix of metaphysical and theological themes. So, you guys, it's this book, this book seems like it's custom made for me. Like, <laughs> I could do a, a whole another year of Tolkien podcasts, probably, just drawing on the material from this book. So, The Nature of Middle-Earth by Carl Hostetter. I have not read it yet, okay? Um, that being said, just based on the table of contents, I heartily recommend it to all of you. And I would be most pleased if anyone out there wants to send me a copy. <laughs> oh, furthermore, I should note that uh, there's a great podcast out there called The Tolkien Road. Um, if any of you are interested in hearing more about Tolkien than what you get on this podcast every week, check out The Tolkien Road. It, the, it's called uh, A Long Walk Through Middle-Earth, and it's two hosts, John and Greta, and they, they have been going, I believe, chapter by chapter through Tolkien's entire legendarium. I mean, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, Silmarillion, all of it, just chapter by chapter, week by week. But also... They are, um, they do just a variety of other episodes on Tolkien adjacent topics. And the most recent one, episode 259, they did an interview with Carl Hostetter on the nature of Middle Earth, specifically metaphysical and theological themes. And it's about an hour, it's super good. So I highly recommend that if you are interested. They talk about all kinds of cool Catholic stuff. And I'm not sure if the hosts of that episode of that podcast are Catholic themselves or not. But they sure get into some deep waters, metaphysical stuff. Um, they talk about hylomorphism. 
which is uh, St. Thomas's, coming from Aristotle actually, the word for what it means that we're made up of body and spirit, all kinds of interesting things. So I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes if any of you want to go check it out on the Tolkien Road. All right, so I have been catching up on Tolkien's letters uh, this week, and one of his most recent ones that I got to is letter number 267, and uh, there's an interesting passage I just want to highlight from that letter. This is, uh, let me pull it up here on my Kindle app, 267, yeah, here we go. Uh, so this is a letter that he was writing to Michael Tolkien, uh, his third son. And uh, towards the end of it, he has an interesting section here about his children leaving the faith. So I'm just going to read it for you in full. He says, When I think of my mother's death, younger than Prisha, uh, who was his Tolkien's only daughter, so his mother died, uh, at a younger age than his daughter was at this time when he wrote the letter in 1965. When I think of my mother's death, he says, younger than Prisha, worn out with persecution, poverty, and largely consequent disease, in the efforts to hand on to us small boys the faith. And remember the tiny bedroom she shared with us in rented rooms in a postman's cottage at Rednow, where she died alone, too ill, viaticum. I find it very hard and bitter when my children stray away from the church. Of course, Canaan seems different to those who have come into it out of the desert, and the later inhabitants of Jerusalem may often seem fools or knaves or worse. But in hac urbe lux solemnis, which means in that city a solemn light, has seemed to me steadily true. I have met snuffy, stupid, undutiful, conceited, ignorant, hypocritical, lazy, tipsy, hard-hearted, cynical, mean, grasping, vulgar, snobbish, and even, at a guess, immoral priests in the course of my peregrinations. But for me, one Father Francis outweighs them all. And I'll just add an aside here. Father Francis Morgan was the priest who raised Tolkien after his mother died. And the Tolkien continues, he was an upper-class Welsh Spaniard Tory <laughs> and seemed to some just a pottering old snob and gossip. He was, and he was not. I first learned charity and forgiveness from him, and in the light of it pierced even the liberal darkness out of which I came, knowing more about Bloody Mary than the mother of Jesus who was never mentioned except as an object of wicked worship by the Romanists. So I think this little passage just gives us quite a piercing insight into Tolkien's heart here in his, his final years. I mean, he's still got about uh, six or eight years of life left. But, you know, this is coming towards the end of his life, and I was not aware... Um, and I still don't know the details, that any of his children had strayed from the church. But clearly at this time, as he's writing to Michael, at least one or more of his children have, at least in Tolkien's view, strayed away. And we can see, gosh, I mean, I have, I don't know how many, how many older people, especially 
grandmothers and mothers in the church. I've talked to in my parish assignments who suffer from this pain of heart of knowing that their children or grandchildren are not practicing the faith. And we see here Tolkien is dealing with exactly the same thing. And it's made all the more bitter for him because of this memory of his mother who suffered so severely in order to pass on the faith to her sons. And now he having received the faith, having kept that fire alive, you know, the faith is so significant for Tolkien's own life and for all of his work. We've seen that throughout all the letters and so forth. But to see his children now straying away for him, uh, what a burden that is. And you know, it must make a, a parent's heart, a father's heart in some way feel like a failure, you know? Um, at least I've encountered that before in people I've spoken to in the parishes and so on. They wonder what they've done wrong, that their kids are no longer practicing. They're no longer uh, holding to the gospel or remaining in the life of the church. Especially Tolkien's comment here, I think, is insightful, where he says, Of course, Canaan seems different to those who have come into it out of the desert. I think that's an interesting comment. And the later inhabitants of Jerusalem may often seem fools or knaves or worse. So there's a sense there of, uh, yeah, for he himself is one who came in out of the desert, or as he says later, this liberal darkness. <laughs> and so he's a convert uh, who has a convert's love for the faith. It's different for those who were born into it and those later inhabitants of Jerusalem who take it for granted and sometimes don't really, don't really love the church or the faith with the ardor of those who have come into it from the world outside, you know. Now, I'm a convert myself, so I have a convert's perspective, which is somewhat biased, because <laughs> that's all that I know. But, uh, you know, it's kind of a trope. It's kind of a, a stereotype in the Catholic world, the fervor of the convert, right? versus the lukewarmness so often of the cradle Catholic. Unfortunate truth, perhaps. Um, but, you know, even though it's not, it's by no means always the case, it's certainly painting with a broad brush, but it, this does have some truth to it. Um, one who's come into the church from without has had to really wrestle with it. No one just falls into the Catholic church by accident, <laughs> especially these days, but certainly also in the 1960s, you know, and in, in, Tolkien converted before that, but even in his day, when he converted, it was a very difficult thing for him to become Catholic, and it's never easy in any age. The Catholic Church is always countercultural in some way or another, in whatever culture she finds herself in, you know. And so, yeah, there's something about becoming Catholic where you have to fight for it, and sometimes you fight against it, and the Lord draws you in anyway. And... Uh, Having gone through, as Tolkien says, the desert to come into the promised land, one tends to love the land much more for the battles one has fought to get there and the hardships one has gone through on the way versus one who's born into the land, who grows up amongst its fruitfulness and its produce. That person can take it for granted. So, I, I don't know what happened with Tolkien's children with regard to the faith. I did do a little research about them. So I learned, so I've gotten all this all this time through reading his letters, and I still wasn't sure how many kids he actually had. So <laughs> I'll tell you in case you're in the same boat. So he had four children, three sons and one daughter. Uh, all of them ended up attending Oxford University. No surprise there. His eldest son, John Francis, became a priest. 
which is interesting. So clearly he wasn't, well, maybe he did go away for a time, I'm not sure, but certainly by the end, he was Catholic uh, and faithful. And then his uh, son Christopher, we know very well. Um, I, I just presume that he kept the faith, but I guess I'm not sure. But um, he, of course, was a, a fighter pilot in the Royal Air Force. And then he kind of followed in his father's footsteps. He went on to study Old and Middle English and Old Icelandic. He became an Oxford professor and, and the executor of Tolkien's estate. And okay, we know all that. And he actually just died last year. Then uh, Michael, the youngest, he, he became a Catholic school teacher. Uh, and he died in 1984. He died young. And so I wonder if Michael might have been one who strayed for a time and then repented, uh, returned to the practice of the faith. I don't know. I'm just guessing. But I did find an article that he wrote for the Sunday Telegraph uh, shortly before he died. And he, he wrote that his father, uh, quote, retained a close interest in every detail of our lives up to the date of his last illness, and that he had the gift uh, quote again of combining fatherhood with friendship, which certainly we see that in these letters. I mean, this letter is one written to Michael, and it's written uh, certainly with a, a great uh, friendliness and a sort of a I don't know, just a nice paternal <laughs> directness uh, and also kindness, uh, which is very very charming. Okay, and then lastly, Priscilla or Prisha, his one dear daughter. She had a lifelong career as a social worker and a probation officer, very interesting, uh, after graduating Oxford. And she also was honorary vice president of the Tolkien Society uh, from 1986 on, I believe, until this year. I think she is still living. I think she is the last and longest living of the Tolkien children. Let me just check real quick. Priscilla Tolkien. Yep, she is. She's still alive. She was born 1929. She's still alive uh, today in 2021. That makes her, what, 92, I think? Or something like that. Okay. So that's what happened with Tolkien's children. Yeah, so I'm not sure about the faith in regards to just where they ended up. I would like to do some more research and see if I can find anything out. Um, but I just found that portion from this one of these late letters of Tolkien, um, quite moving, quite moving. Because we've seen the advice he gives to them, for example, those letters to Christopher when he was uh, away at war, just reminding him about the need to adore the Blessed Sacrament. It's the one great thing to love on earth. And reminding him to say his prayers, memorize Latin prayers, remember all that, you know? And just, just imagine his fatherly heart for his kids, desiring them above all, um, I mean, every father desires good things for his children, for them to have the fullness of life. And uh, for Tolkien, certainly, certainly that meant he wanted them to have the fullness of the faith and to hold firm. So uh, I hope that, in fact, by the end of their lives, at least, whatever may have happened along the way, that all of these children of our friend J.R.R. Tolkien uh, returned to the practice of the faith of their childhood and then those who have passed on into the life to come are united with him now and with our Lord in glory. So just a few words about uh, this week's story from the Unfinished Tales, now that we've covered all that other unrelated ground. <laughs> this week, uh, I read the story of Kirion and Aeoril. 
And uh, Kirion and Aeoril are two important kings. Kirion was actually the uh, one of the stewards of Gondor, and Aeoril, we know, uh, was king of the uh, Aeotheod, which are the horse people who later became the Rohirrim, the men of Rohan. But Aeoril is kind of the, he's considered to be like their, the father of their people. So it was cool to read this story about uh, Curion and Aeoril and their friendship. So uh, the story begins with Aeoril, it's an interesting, uh, interesting story at the beginning of Aeoril taming this white horse named Felaroth. Felaroth, uh, Tolkien says in a letter, is uh, an ancestor of Shadowfax, who's the horse that Gandalf famously takes in The Lord of the Rings for his own. And it says uh, th that Felaroth is to ordinary horses something of like elves are to men. So he's sort of a different breed. He comes from a way, oh, somewhere away west. And he can understand human speech. And so he's, he's sort of, he's, he's something more than a horse. He's kind of a more noble breed. Um, so Aeoril's father had spotted Felaroth out in the wilderness, just running wild, and tried to tame him. And he actually got thrown off and died in the attempt. So then Aeoril, when he, he grew up into the fullness of manhood, he goes out and he tracks down Felaroth and he manages to, to get a hold of him, you know, and he, he tells Felaroth that he now owes him his obedience, his freedom, speaking of obedience, in payment for his father's life. And so he he doesn't he never breaks Felaroth, you know he's, he doesn't tame him like by uh, forcing him to submit, but he tames him by sort of appealing to his the horse's sense of justice, <laughs> telling him, okay, well a life for a life, you you killed my father who was trying to tame you, now you owe me your freedom, and Felaroth agrees he submits himself to Aeoril, so I thought that was just an interesting story there at the beginning. Anyway, Aeoril, having tamed Felaroth, he leads his people, the Aeotheod, way off into the north, and they're, they're off beyond Mirkwood in the distant north of Middle-earth. Now, back in Gondor, there's this invasion of Easterlings, these uh, wicked men from away in the east, who come in and they're amassing along the borders of Gondor and they're setting up their tents, and it's an invasion. So Gondor, the forces of Gondor are trying to defend themselves, but things are not looking good. And so Curion, the steward, sends out, I think, six messengers uh, all the way out to the Aeotheod, way off in the north. And uh, apparently there had been, I think, some alliance or some kind of at least relationship between Gondor and the Aeotheod away in the distant past, okay? But nothing formal. But Curion is sending messengers to them as kind of their only hope in order to withstand this invasion. So he sends the six messengers, each with a red arrow, and only one makes it through. But he makes it to Aeoril, he tells them about their, their situation, their, their desperate plight. He gives them the red arrow, and Aeoril agrees to come to Gondor's aid. So this is all prefiguring much the same thing that happens later in The Lord of the Rings when... Uh, uh, Gondor, Denethor, I think, calls for aid from the Rohirrim. 
and they come to Gondor's aid at their final hour of distress when the Nazgul and the orcs are attacking and things look very grim indeed. So this prefigures that. So uh, the, uh, the horsemen come riding down from the north and they, uh, they make the way there in kind of miraculous time. Uh, it's implied that this happened sort of by Galadriel's help. Even though they don't really trust her, <laughs> uh, they've heard some stories about her. They avoid going through Lothlorien, but it seems that she's helping them, especially at the end when she brings up this, well, there's this mysterious mist over the river they have to cross, and it keeps them shrouded from anyone's view, so the, the uh, Easterlings don't see them, and they make it across without being attacked, and they can ambush the Easterlings and rescue the Gondorians. So they make their way there just in the nick of time, and they save the men of Gondor from a totally otherwise hopeless defeat. Then Kirion, in thanksgiving to Eor, he says, Okay, uh, take your time here. You, you, can, you, know, you can set up your tents on this land, and you can just, just hang out here for three months. Okay, and then let's meet up here at this certain place called Amon Anwar, which means the Hill of Awe. And we'll meet up there, and we'll... Uh, take counsel together before you leave. So three months later, they meet up there at Amon Anwar, and this is the same place that uh, that uh, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Who is the king of the Rohirrim in Lord of the Rings? Um, sh- oh gosh, anyone remember? <laughs> Shout it out if you know it. <laughs> oh my gosh, I wish I could hear you guys. Uh, who? What is it? What is his name? Um, oh, Theoden, of course. I can only think of Thingle for some reason. Yeah, so that's the same place that Theoden and his men ride up to. You know, it's that, um, that uh, you know, switchback, back and forth path up a hill with all those little statues of men at each of the junctures. Very strange. The, the Pukul men, I think they're called. And then at the top, there's kind of a quiet, uh, secluded veil. Well, this is the same place they go to. Back here, Kirion and Eor go to, and at the very top is uh, the place where Elendil is buried, that first king of Gondor who came across the ocean from Numenor, and we talked about him last week. So uh, they go up there, and Kirion and Eor both swear oaths to each other uh, on behalf of their people. So they swear this oath of friendship. Uh, which shall last as long as their kingdoms shall last. And furthermore, Kirion gives, gives to Eor and to all his people uh, all that land, uh, which is called uh, Kalinarthon, that kind of borderland of Gondor where this battle was fought. So it's beneficial to both of them because Gondor has declined and they're no longer really able to guard and take care of that land. But also, the Eotheod are becoming too great of a people now. To They're running out of space, basically, in northern Middle-earth. So uh, for them to be able to come down and expand into this land is very good for them because they need the space. <laughs> so this is uh, the oath that they swear. So Eorl then stood forth. And taking his spear from his squire, he set it upright in the ground. Then he drew his sword and cast it up, shining in the sun. And catching it again, he stepped forward and laid the blade upon the mound, but with his hand still about the hilt. 
He spoke then in a great voice the oath of Aeoro. This he said in the tongue of the Aeotheod, which in the common speech is interpreted, Hear now all peoples who bow not to the shadow in the east, but by the gift of the Lord of the Mundburg, we will come to dwell in the land that he names Kalinarthon. And therefore I vow in my own name, and on behalf of the Aeotheod of the north, that between us and the great people of the west there shall be friendship forever. Their enemies shall be our enemies, their need shall be our need. And whatsoever evil or threat or assault may come upon them, we will aid them to the utmost end of our strength. This vow shall descend to my heirs, all such as may come after me in our new land, and let them keep it in faith unbroken, lest the shadow fall upon them, and they become accursed. Then Aeor sheathed his sword and bowed and went back to his, to his captains. Kirion then made answer. Standing to his full height, he laid his hand upon the tomb, and in his right hand held up the white wand of the stewards and spoke words that filled those who heard them with awe. For as he stood up, the sun went down in flame in the west, and his white robe seemed to be on fire. And after he had vowed that Gondor should be bound by a like bond of friendship and aid in all need, he lifted up his voice and said, uh, in the common speech, I'll skip the part in Quenya, but he said in the common speech, This oath shall stand in memory of the glory of the land of the star, and of the faith of Elendil the faithful, in the keeping of those who sit upon the thrones of the west, and of the one who is above all thrones forever. And then it says, Such an oath had not been heard in Middle-earth since Elendil himself had sworn alliance with Gilgalad, king of the Eldar. So that's really, uh, I think, just a, a beautiful exchange. Yeah, those those oaths uh, of friendship that are sworn between Kirion and Aeoro, especially in light of, if you know, in the Old Testament, um, the covenant between God and Israel is portrayed in similar terms, you know, um, your enemies will be my enemies. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of the prototype. A covenant, a covenant, is a is a pact of friendship, um, which is sealed by blood, and which basically has the meaning of yeah, your friends will be my friends, your enemies my enemies, my goods are your goods. Um, yeah, and so this is what Kirion and Aero are swearing, swearing now on behalf of their peoples. A friendship which will last into perpetuity as long as their kingdoms shall last. This has consequences reaching far, far beyond their own individual lives. You know, the fates of their whole nations are now intertwined um, in a beautiful way. And I love this quote from the chapter here. It says, um, Beyond wisdom and policy, both Kirion and Aeoral were moved at that time by the great friendship that bound their peoples together and by the love that was between them as true men. On the part of Kirion, the love was that of a wise father, old in the cares of the world, for a son in the strength and hope of his youth. While in Kirion, Aeoral saw the highest and noblest man of the world that he knew, and the wisest, on whom sat the majesty of the kings of men of long ago. So talk about fathers and sons. I mean, that's, that's, that's the whole 
father-son dynamic there between Kirion and Aeoril, um, and the friendship that is between them, a friendship characterized, uh, it, it is between equals, they're kings of, of two kingdoms. But there's also certainly this note of Kirion as one who's elder and wiser, um, fathering in a certain sense, in the sense of initiating him, uh, Aeoril, and Aeoril looking up to Kirion and desiring to follow his example, to be like him. So just, I think, a really powerful dynamic there um, that Tolkien portrays very, very well. So this is the beginning of Rohan, and we see in The Lord of the Rings just how important Rohan becomes for the future of Gondor and for all of Middle-earth. You know, if it weren't for Rohan uh, and the Rohirrim, the descendants of the House of Aeoril, then Gondor would have been utterly destroyed at the end of the Third Age. So we get also this thing here. We, it's, it's analogous to what we see with the elves. You know, they're the elder people, but they're declining, diminishing slowly, slowly, slowly as men are becoming now more powerful. And in the fourth age, the age of men begins as the last elves sail away west. Well, analogously too, we see here Gondor, which is a, a nobler house of, of nobler descent, a Western blood, you know, from away across the sea. Well, Gondor is slowly, slowly, slowly declining. There are no more kings now. It's ruled by stewards. And little by little, they're not able to take care of all their realm. You know, orcs are living in Ethelion, and the borderlands are being assailed by Easterlings. So Gondor is declining, and Rohan is growing. Rohan, this younger, less noble people, they're growing. Um, but it's not a rivalry between them. It's friendship. And Gondor is instructing Rohan, and Rohan will help to defend Gondor. And the two together uh, are going to, to coexist in friendship and peace. Um, really, this is, you know, I mean, it's not one of my favorite stories. Um, it's a little bit fragmentary as a story. Um, this is not one of the best in the Unfinished Tales, <laughs> um, particularly because so much of it is given over to description of that battle, which for me is it's not so much boring as it's just difficult for me to follow and to visualize some of these battles. So I tend to skim through those sections. But um, this particular theme, the dynamic between Kirion and Aeoril, uh, as portrayed here, I think is a powerful and an important one. And for that reason, this is certainly uh, a valuable addition to the Unfinished Tales. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? A saint means one who is holy. All right, so just to wrap up today's podcast with a little word about today's saint. Um, you know, I had the experience I sometimes have <laughs> in the seminary where I went down to morning prayer this morning, uh, not expecting to celebrate any saint, only to be surprised when uh, <laughs> morning prayer began and I discovered I was on completely the wrong page in the breviary. Well, the reason for that sometimes is because um, our breviaries in the U.S. came out in 1973, okay? So the, the breviary went through a substantial revision after the Second Vatican Council, just like the Mass and all the other liturgical texts. They were significantly revised, rearranged, and then translated into English. And they've never been retranslated, okay? 
So the Mass was retranslated in 2011. And the U.S. bishops supposedly are hard at work retranslating the breviary, and we should get a new one some year soon. I've been hearing about it since I entered seminary in 2014. And they've been working on it even longer, so who knows when it will ever come out. The point is, our breviaries came out in 1973, but there's been a ton of new saints since then. Especially during the pontificate of John Paul II, who canonized literally hundreds of saints. And so you get the situation sometimes, where there's a saint on the liturgical calendar, but that saint is not in the breviary. And so if you just go by the calendar in your breviary, then you miss some saints. So today, fortunately, um, <laughs> because I'm in the seminary and not just living on my own, I did not miss today's saint, um, even though he's not in the breviary. Uh, we celebrated him at morning prayer uh, using some of the common texts in the breviary. You know, there, some saints have propers, proper texts, but there's also common texts for whole categories of saints, like there's a common of virgins, a common of martyrs, etc., so you can also use those common texts to celebrate a saint who fits into those categories, even if there's no proper text. So, all that to say, today we celebrated Blessed Francis Xavier Silos, uh, a saint who was canonized on my birthday, April 9th, in the year 2000, when I was <coughs> uh, very young. <laughs> and uh, uh, Blessed Francis Xavier Silos is important because he is... He is one of our few American saints with a little asterisk by his name because he was not actually born in America, but he did die in America and he spent most of his life in America and his entire priestly life was spent in America. So who is this guy? I'd never heard of him before today. Francis Xavier Silos, blessed Francis Xavier Silos. He was born in Bavaria in 1819. He was one of 12, so talk about a big Catholic family, and um, <laughs> he uh, initially entered a diocesan seminary there in Germany, so he was trained to be a diocesan priest, uh, just like us here at St. Patrick's, but at a certain time in his formation, he heard about this congregation called the Redemptorists. Um, it's an order that was founded by St. Alphonsus de Liguori, and they are a missionary order. And their charism is basically, as far as I understand, I don't know much about them, but they go in, I think, in, into, you know, the, the poorest, the most impoverished, the most forgotten parts of the world and preach the gospel. And they go and provide pastoral care. And so at that time, it's <laughs> almost impossible to imagine now, but at that time, um, one of the places that fit the bill was the United States of America. So redemptorist priests from Europe would come to the USA to tend to European immigrants who lived in great poverty and often faced incredible obstacles, persecution, and so on here in America from the Protestants <laughs> and the ruling elites of our country. So Francis Xavier Silos uh, was convicted while he was already in seminary with this vocation from the Lord to go and be a missionary to become a redemptorist and come to America. So he did. He left his seminary, he sailed across the Atlantic, and he, he ended up in Baltimore. He uh, entered the novitiate with the redemptorists there, and he was ordained in 1844. Uh, he was at the age of, I believe, 25. Uh, yep, yeah, 25 years old, ordained in Baltimore. And 
His first priestly assignment then was in Pittsburgh, and he worked there with another very famous American saint, Saint John Neumann, who is actually, uh, he has the distinction of being our first American bishop to become a saint. And as far as I can tell, he's still our only male American saint. Um, gosh, guys, we got to step up our game here. I don't know. Because <laughs> there's several there's several women, um, quite a few, Elizabeth Ann Seton, Marianne Cope, who we've talked about, uh, Catherine Drexel, of course, there's uh, Kateri Tekakwitha, who's a well-known one. Mm. But yeah, so far as I can tell, um, please correct me if I'm wrong, there's a couple other blesseds, like Blessed Stanley Rother, but I believe St. John Neumann is still our only American saint. So anyway, anyway, so uh, his first parish assignment was under St. John Neumann as the pastor. So imagine having a pastor as your, uh, having a saint as your pastor for your first assignment. Oh my God, that's every priest's dream. So he worked there with St. John Neumann for several years in Pittsburgh. And then he had some other assignments. He ended up becoming uh, superior of the Redemptorist Seminary about um, 20-ish years later into his priesthood. Of course, that was during the Civil War. And so uh, Blessed Francis Xavier made the trip to Washington, D.C., where he met with Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> and he obtained uh, an agreement from the president, basically, not to send any seminarians to the front lines during the Civil War. So seminarians would not be drafted, even though all... Uh, U.S. men were being drafted to fight in the war. So uh, Blessed Francis Xavier stood up on behalf of his students so that they wouldn't be drafted and have to go fight the war. They could continue their seminary formation in peace within the walls of the Redemptorist Seminary. So good for him. And then he continued on. He was an itinerant mission preacher. He went all over the U.S. to all kinds of different places uh, teaching and preaching missions both in English and in German because he was mostly serving the German immigrant communities. And his very, very last assignment was in New Orleans in 1866. He heard that a large group of German immigrants had arrived there, so he went down there to serve their needs. And the yellow fever was uh, spreading through the city, especially among that community who lived in great poverty. And so he was working with the victims and caring for them. And he contracted the disease and ended up dying of it the very next year, in 1867. So he died caring for his people there in New Orleans. And then, I don't know what happened in the interim, if, he was, if a devotion to him was you know, fostered or what, but it took another uh, century and a half before he was beatified. Again, that was in the year 2000 by St. John Paul II who beatified tons and tons and tons of saints from all over the world, especially lots of martyrs, but also lots of confessors, faithful priests like Blessed Francis Xavier. So here is what St. John Paul II said in his homily on April 9th, 2000, when he beatified this priest. He quotes Psalm 51, Give me again the joy of your help, with a spirit of fervor, sustain me, that I may teach transgressors your ways, and sinners may return to you.
Then John Paul goes on to say, Faithful to the spirit and charism of the Redemptorist congregation to which he belonged, Father Francis Xavier Silos often meditated upon these words of the psalmist. Sustained by God's grace and an intense life of prayer, Father Silos left his native Bavaria and committed himself generously and joyfully to the missionary apostolate among immigrant communities in the United States. In the various places where he worked, Father Francis Xavier brought his enthusiasm, spirit of sacrifice, and apostolic zeal. To the abandoned and the lost, he preached the message of Jesus Christ, the source of eternal salvation. And in the hours spent in the confessional, he convinced many to return to God. Today, Blessed Francis Xavier Silos invites the members of the Church to deepen their union with Christ in the sacraments of penance and the Eucharist. Through his intercession, may all who work in the vineyard for the salvation of God's people be encouraged and strengthened in their task. So what I love about Blessed Francis Xavier Silos, who, I mean, there's really not I mean, I, I've given you the, the details, the outline, the sketch of his life, but there's, there's not super much that's, like, known about him, really. I mean, you know, we have... Okay, so let me, let me um, nuance that a little bit, because by comparison with, like, saints from the very early church, we know a ton about him. Like, we know exactly when and where he was born and all these details of his parish assignments and stuff, and, you know. So we know a lot compared to those early saints who we really know very, very little but what I mean is with Francis Xavier Silos, you don't, there's not a lot of stories, you know, of, there's not like many tales of miracles that he worked or um, the most significant story that I could find about him was this visit to President Lincoln <laughs> where he stood up for the rights of his seminarians. My point is Francis Xavier Silos seems to me to be a, a great patron of the life of a humble parish priest. Now, he traveled all over the USA serving his German immigrant communities in all these different places where the Redemptorists worked. But what was the substance of his ministry? Well, he preached the gospel. He heard confessions. He celebrated mass. He taught seminarians and cared for them, you know? And he lived among his people who were poor and ostracized. And he died caring for them. He didn't abandon the sick in their time of need, but he died working and living among them, making their last hours comfortable and ensuring that they had the sacraments, you know, um, and say, working for the salvation of souls, even up until his dying breath. And that is the life of a diocesan priest, you know. Um, it may not be one that's marked with miracles in the sense of, spectacular stories which later become legends that are passed down but it's one that's filled every day with miracles in the sense of the salvation of souls by the celebration of the sacraments and the preaching of the gospel you know it's not flashy and the life of a parish priest is rarely flashy <laughs> or glamorous um, but it is miraculous and it is noble and it is holy and so, Blessed Francis Xavier Silos is a worthy patron, I think, of, uh, of all parish priests, diocesan priests, and those who serve the poor and 
those who, yeah, in a humble and in a quiet way, in parishes all over the country, you know, we hear we hear bad news all the time on the on the news, <laughs> but uh, there are so many thousands and thousands of parishes where good priests are quietly going about their work, um, not seeking any attention, and none will be given to them <laughs> beyond the borders of their little parish and their little flock. But they are tirelessly and quietly working for the salvation of the souls entrusted to their care. Blessed Silos is a great example of that. You know, I'd never heard of him before today. Many of you probably haven't heard of him before today. But he is one we can ask to pray for us and one who we can turn to in the moments in our own vocations where we are laboring in obscurity, um, doing work that is, uh, while noble, uh, the world does not take much notice of. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It's worthy work. Uh, in the sight of God, for the salvation of souls. So we will ask, Blessed Francis Xavier Silos, please pray for us, that we may have a share in the apostolic zeal for souls, which the Lord placed within your heart as a young man, and which animated all your years of priestly life. And dear friends, uh, it's uh, about a half past 9 p.m. here, so i got to get to bed. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I am pretty worn out. But I'm pleased I got this episode recorded so I can put it up here real quick and get something out for you guys this week. Please pray for me in the midst of midterm exams, and I hope to be back speaking with you again next uh, Sunday. Until then, dear friends, may Almighty God bless us, protect us from all evil, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen.